Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen, and I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So how are you doing, Dad? I'm good. And this topic that we're going to get into about mm. uh, resources for people who are frontline responders right now, healthcare providers, paramedics, people in law enforcement, etc., who are managing this pandemic for the sake of all of us, really, uh, is such a poignant topic. And it really weighs heavily on my own heart. So mm. I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah, I know. I know it's been a very significant one for one for you recently, and you've really been thinking about it. So to set that up a little bit, uh, so many people have been impacted in ways large and small by the coronavirus epidemic. And there's no doubt that one of the most impacted groups, as you said, has been frontline healthcare providers of various kinds, uh, from the doctors and nurses who care for people in overwhelmed hospitals to the whole ecosystem of physical and mental health providers who have worked with people suffering the effects of this virus. And if I could include, I think about the people pushing a broom at two in the morning, wiping down a hospital floor, yeah, uh, carrying stuff totally. out, removing the bags. You know, when I when my dad was in the hospital, you would come and you would we would see the situation and. The doctors and nurses are the tip of the iceberg mm, of mm -hmm. the whole system, the clerical staff, yeah, the absolutely. people managing everything, keeping the lights on, making sure the air conditioning system is well filtered, just all of it. Yeah. Thank you to all of you yeah, right now. Absolutely. For sure. Really. Totally. All of you. Thank you. And as you're saying, you know, you can expand that circle and you can go beyond people in the formal caregiving professions. Um, so many people have stepped up into helping roles of various kinds over the last couple of months here, uh, whether it's people who are supporting an at-risk family member or those who check groceries and drive buses and deliver the mail and generally kind of keep the trains of society running more or less on time, have been exposed to a totally different level of risk and threat then frankly, they might have initially signed up for when you sign up to be a bus driver, or deliver the mail or whatever else. And there's kind of a different level of personal risk and consideration that is now going into these jobs. They are now unequivocally part of that helping profession. So today we're going to focus on both the direct stress and trauma that people in those roles might naturally be feeling these days, as well as compassion fatigue. Uh, which is sometimes known as secondary traumatic stress, and maybe even particularly focusing kind of on that side of the equation. So as you were saying, I know that this has been a very pregnant topic for you recently, and you've been doing really a lot of thinking about it. So just to kind of tee us up, is there anything that you've been particularly musing on? One thing I've been musing on is how people manage in ways that are new and unprecedented for them as individuals. Mm high levels of anxiety, mm. and also potentially high levels of outrage. Mm. I think back on my experience going to Haiti the very first time. I mean, it's one thing to read about countries and very highly disadvantaged, profoundly impoverished people. It's another thing to walk out of the airport in Port-au-Prince into the mm. situation there. Mm -hmm. And looking back on the very the first time I visited, I was in a cold rage the whole time. And it was a very strange experience. I was calm. I was functional. I wasn't irritable. I wasn't out of control. But I was in a cold rage. I was morally appalled. Mm. And I think, in a way, that's one of the more beautiful, distinguishing features of our species, mm. that we can be appalled 
on behalf of others. It's not that we didn't get the special frosting on our birthday cake that we wanted. No, we're appalled at impact on other people. So I think that's something that that is in the air, certainly in um, many places. That's something that we're processing. We're also worried about others. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping it real here, uh, you've been living with us and uh, we've been sheltering in place together and you are getting ready to move out into the world. Mm-hmm. And we've been very careful, even annoyingly careful in this bubble that we function in. Uh, you might have taken a few more risks. And one thing I also want to call out in terms of the category of caregivers is people like you, Forrest, who've been careful and respectful Mm -hmm. uh, for your impact on older people. I won't call myself elderly, but I would definitely (laughs) say that I'm in, I call it early, late middle age. But anyway, um, and so you are going to be leaving. And so you're going to be leaving the bubble. And I know you're going to be exposed to certain risks. Right now, your sister almost certainly is toward the tail end in New York City of having already had COVID-19. And I worry about her. I worry about you. So, you know, we've had a lot of new things to feel. So that's the first thing I would just say, you know, being spacious and accepting and compassionate with yourself about what we're feeling and the velocity and the turbulence and the allness of what we're feeling right now. It's really different. It's like we're used to hearing a woodwind flute playing softly in the background. (laughs) And now we're all just dropped into a Metallica concert. Right? How do we function with mm-hmm. the level of stimulation, the zigging and zagging? So yeah. that's one thing to take into account totally. right off the top. No, I, I think absolutely that we've all been tested and rattled by this mm-hmm. in a way that we are not normally tested and rattled by world events. Yeah. And for me, what I think I was kind of reflecting on this in terms of specifically kind of frontline medical providers, but honestly, even that bigger group of people that we were talking about, mm-hmm. where normally if you're a doctor, you don't have to worry about catching your patient's broken bone. Yeah. So you're exposed to caregiver fatigue, certainly to an extent, Mm -hmm. but you don't really have a personal risk, a Mm -hmm. a direct potential trauma that comes alongside that caregiver fatigue. So this is really a different ball of wax that many people are going to. They're fearing for themselves, they're fearing for their patients, and then just kind of, as you said, the density of it. Yeah. It, it's so it's the surge. dense and yeah. it's so overwhelming. Yeah. And, you know, we, we just don't know. I think also part of it is that we just don't know where we are yeah. in the arc mm-hmm. of this whole thing. And, you know, adding those things up, that's a lot to be thinking about and exposed to and coping with internally. Mm-hmm. And uh, on this podcast so far, we've done a couple of episodes related to anxiety and fear. Mm-hmm. as you were speaking to, as mm-hmm. two of the primary things that people might be experiencing mm-hmm. out of this whole thing right now. Mm-hmm. If instead you were talking to somebody, whether a healthcare provider or not, and instead of saying to you, I feel really anxious or I feel really afraid, they said, you know, I'm just exhausted. Yeah, I'm just beat. Yeah. Like psychologically, I'm just worn out and I don't know if I can do this anymore. And it's starting to become really, really tough for me to wake up at four in the morning and put my stuff on and go into the hospital. Yeah. What would you say to that person? Well, first thing I would say is that I've never walked in your shoes. Mm. I've had hard days. I've had hard years. I've never had to walk in the shoes that you're walking in right now. And I'm not going to presume that I know all of what that's like. And what I understand of it leads me to be enormously grateful Mm. and respectful and wanting to be helpful in any way I can be. I think that's an appropriate response. 
Another one that I uh, draw upon myself and I think people can draw upon who are in caregiver roles right now, including in frontline healthcare responders, mm -hmm. is, the, is, uh, is the idea of refuge, mm. which takes us into the feeling of refuge. What can we take refuge in? And I have many, many friends who are uh, healthcare providers, doctors and nurses who are very engaged even right now on the front line and carrying a fair amount of risk as a result. And I know what they do is they take refuge in doing what they can do, knowing what they do know, taking the precautions that they can, also taking refuge in things like duty. We, we just take refuge in duty and we accept the fact that our duty may expose us to certain risks and we make a fundamental choice. Do we walk away from our duty? And some people may walk away from their duty or they may feel that it's appropriate to walk away from their duty. Okay. On the other hand, if we continue to do our duty, whatever that is, we've made that choice. And adding a lot of second guessing or kvetching about it in a sense, just as an excess burden. And um, and worry about the future. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a place for kvetching and complaining, and there's <laughs> including moral outrage. I don't mean to disparage that. It's more like, you know, what do you what do you carry? And I think there's a kind of peace that comes over us when we just know I'm going to do what I have to do in the next minute, mm -hmm. and the minute after that, and the minute after that, and I take refuge in that, and I know that there are uncertain consequences downstream, and I'm willing to accept that risk. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just live in what I know I have to do. Mm. That's really important. Yeah, what do you? Well, one of the things that you are really particularly good at, I think, is practice. You're a practice guy. You like to describe yourself that way. And I think it's overtly true in the book that we wrote together, Resilient. There are I don't actually know how many practices there are in the book, but there are at least 20. Well, especially uh, if you go down to the level of yeah, sentences or paragraphs, what do you want you know, to talk telling exactly. people yeah, what, what we can do. What constitutes a practice, yeah, but what there you can are do. many what you can do yeah, in the book. Um, yeah. For somebody, again, who's in that environment, yeah. they're anxious for themselves, they're fearful for their mm -hmm. friends and family, yeah. they're trying to help others, but they're not sure if they're going to catch this, you mm -hmm. know, potentially fatal illness, mm -hmm. um, they're tired, they are worn out, mm -hmm. uh, they're having a really tough time marshalling, frankly, continued empathy and compassion for their patients, understandably, not because yeah. they're not kind people, but because mm -hmm. you just wear out yeah. at a certain point. Out of your long history of knowledge of various practices, are there any that you think would be particularly useful right now? Refuge in duty, mm -hmm. uh, refuge in the feeling of breathing in this moment, you're still going on being. Refuge in the sense of meaning. There's a lot of research on trauma and who becomes traumatized and who doesn't by situations. The more you have a sense that what you're doing is meaningful, mm -hmm. that goes back to duty again. Mm -hmm. And people can use maybe different words for some of these ideas, but the essence is the same. So if you have a feeling that what you're doing is meaningful and it's the service of the greater good, Maybe you're in touch with what could feel like a stream of contribution, a stream of service moving through you or all other, the healing, the healing process, the caregiving process, the palliative process, if it comes to that, that's streaming through you. It can kind of carry you along. These are all sorts of things we can take refuge in. Mm. We take refuge in camaraderie. That's another major finding in the trauma literature, in addition to a sense of meaning, that those who have a sense of camaraderie, 
mm-hmm. with others. Mm-hmm. And so looking for that, and then when you have that sense of camaraderie, taking the extra beat, it's literally like half a breath or less where you just got it. <laughs> you know, it's like letting it land. Uh, mm-hmm. Cognitively, we're so quick. Uh, we can have three to four separate ideas in the space of a single second, but to have three or four emotional, to have an emotional experience that actually lands usually takes several seconds for it to have a chance of sinking in. So slowing it down for that beat. So I definitely say those things. Yeah. I think that that emphasis on the collective experience that you're mentioning right there mm-hmm. is a really huge part of it, particularly yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. And obviously there are so many things that have gone incredibly sideways (laughs) in society based off of this, including a lot of incredibly negative direct impacts. And also at the same time, I do think that just objectively, we feel closer to each other in a certain kind of way than, I mean, we have as a group of people since mm. maybe, I mean, the last time that I have memory of would be something around 9-11 in the mm. United States where for better or worse, and you know, you can re-legislate that, but there was an enormous kind of coming together experience mm. of the population as a whole. And I do think that this has really created the feeling, for me at least, of all of us being in one very small canoe mm-hmm. going down a very scary river together, but we're all in the same boat. And I have really seen just a collective mobilization of goodwill, of understanding, of desire to combat this thing. And yeah, in some circles, you don't see that. You see denying, you see making it smaller than it is, you see, oh, but it's just the flu, you see all this stuff out there. And yeah, okay, brush that aside. I think that you know you can look for the helpers to use the mm. wonderful line from Mr. Rogers, uh, one of my favorites. And that, I think, can really help ground us in the elements of this that have not been just kind of a fruitless beating back of the relentless tide to a certain extent. And I think that that might be what many people are experiencing, this feeling of just like beating back this endless tide. So the more that we can drop into, as you're saying, the things that are truly good and useful about the work that we're doing, including that sense of collective purpose, I mean... There are cities in Europe that are designating times at night where Mm. everyone goes out and applauds on the balcony Mm. for all of the healthcare providers. Yeah. And, you know, you could make an argument and maybe we should have been doing that already prior to a pandemic. But I think that watching things like that is kind of a lovely illustration of that collective purpose. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash beingwell. 
If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This may sound just way too superficial. I've been reflecting on this myself. And in a small way, like, let's say, what a person working in an emergency room is dealing with, I find that when I'm doing things that I don't prefer to do, mm. like I'm tired, I don't want to do it, or it's a hassle, it helps me to remember that all experiences are the same in their nature. Mm. They're all transient. They're all made of parts. They all come and go due to causes, and none of them have any essence any solidity to them. They're existent, they're real, they matter. I choose pleasure over pain generally, but fundamentally, it's just an experience. If people can relate to that from the standpoint of practice, uh, it can be kind of helpful because what happens a lot, it's not so much the experience that's the problem, it's our relationship to the experience. Mm. The resistance of it, the outrage at it, the pushing away of it, um, the chasing of it, and I just also think about how, uh, you know, I had a teacher who said, everyone's a mystic on their deathbed. Hmm. Why not start sooner? And kind of by analogy, when we're pushed to the absolute limit, we realize we have to surrender to the moment as it is hmm. while bringing a whole heart and our best game to it. We understand that when we're caught up in a blizzard. We understand that when we're nearly drowning and we're trying to save somebody else too. We understand it then. And we're in one of those moments where the things that we understand in, in the extreme situation, which is also what the great teachers continually are going on about, basically, we now 
realize, I think, that we need to be that way all the time. Mm. Feel it as it flows through you and welcoming the next moment, doing the best you can. That's deep practice. And it's also a practice that reduces friction. Mm. You know, <laughs> when everything's going fine, it's okay to have a fair amount of friction between us and reality, mm -hmm. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, you can kind of deal with it and you blow a friction later that night by going out to dinner with your friends. Well, <laughs> guess what? Not now. And so these days, I think the more we interact with our circumstances in a less frictional kind of way, the less wear and tear we're going to accumulate on ourselves and the less we're going to pass on to others. I think a key part of what you're saying there is that idea of letting it flow, mm. which again, might just sound incredibly simplistic. And also, how can I possibly let this flow? It's this incredibly negative experience. And obviously, nothing we're saying here at all is diminishing the incredible negativity of the nature of even the transient experience yeah. of being in that hospital, surrounded by those people who are all having the worst day of their life. Yep. And that is a lot of psychic weight yeah. to have bouncing around the room. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to downplay that in any way. Mm -hmm. But I think that to kind of use, as you were using there, a certain element of sort of Buddhist psychology or Buddhist philosophy, there is a real difference between kind of holding on to the coal and letting the coal go. Mm. And man, is this a situation where it's really, really hard to let the coal go because you are suffuse with coals. Mm -hmm. You are covered in coals. Yeah. It is tough to release them. Yeah. But to the extent possible, and this is a big ask, but mm. to the extent possible, feeling an experience, feeling it fully, letting it land on the body, and then letting it go, yeah. and trying to move on to the next experience. And including, I mean, to go to kind of the furthest extreme of it, you're working with an older patient, things go sideways, the patient doesn't make it. Obviously, that's a incredibly heavy, traumatic experience, but as you said before, you did what you could. Mm. You know, everyone did the best they could in that moment. Yeah. And you feel the weight of it. And yeah. you are a good provider. And maybe there's anger associated with it. Maybe it's overwhelming. Maybe there's sadness. Maybe there's a sense of purposelessness, whatever it is. I think that the what probably doesn't work the most in those moments, at least in my experience, and the the small touching of those moments that I've had, is trying not to feel them, mm -hmm. trying to push them away. Mm -hmm. So it's about letting them land, letting them be experienced, and then allowing them to be experienced out, to kind mm -hmm. of use the language, to just yeah. let it flow through the body, yeah. step outside of the room, reorganize around the next task, and then do your best to perform that task in that moment as well as you possibly can. And again, it's a big ask. It's a high level of practice. Mm. But I think that that is what is being demanded of people in those environments right now. So there are, are all these things people can do when they are in extreme conditions. Mm. Yeah, please. And uh, while I've never been a frontline medical provider, I've definitely been a frontline wilderness, nearly dying kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> more yeah, than more totally. than once. And one of the things um, I've learned is that there are both really practical things you can do. Keep breathing. Pay attention to the body. That will tend to pull you out of anxious rumination of one kind or mm -hmm. another or mm -hmm. angry rumination. That's helpful. Touch other people mm -hmm. as appropriate. Feel connected. Try to uh, have mini breaks, micro breaks even. Like yeah. literally just 
30 seconds breath. to breathe. Yeah, Seriously. or, five, or yeah. three. Yeah, look at the upper corners of the room. You know, move your gaze out away from the immediate situation. Mm -hmm. So there, there are a lot of go-tos. There are a lot mm -hmm. of good things, and people have more in the notes. When EMDR, people, yeah, totally. Yeah, that they could do in the in the moment. And uh, for the you know the discussion related to the release of this podcast, mm -hmm. we may get suggestions from other people. We may be able to yeah, pass them along. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. And again, here too, I, I hope this doesn't come across as as glib because I think it's important to be careful about you know glib cliches and yeah. false reassurance for other people mm -hmm. you know, and and so forth. To the extent that we can experience ourselves as the space in which things happen, or we experience ourselves as having a quality of ongoing being mm. inside normal reality, with, with, and also for some it'll reach beyond ordinary reality. If we can have a sense of there's an ongoing of being through which feelings and thoughts and actions flow, if we can have a sense of, of a kind of underlying serenity or a contextual serenity mm. about life, mortality, we are all hostages to fate, to use that expression. We're all subject to mm -hmm. old age, disease, and death in a good long life. Mm -hmm. So we can have a kind of serenity which is contextual. Mm -hmm. It's like, what's the context here? I think that makes all the difference in the world. What's the container? What's the bull? What's the context? And if the context, grounded in some realism, some wisdom, and some practice, is a field of awareness, a sense of being, uh, maybe a fundamental serenity or peacefulness about all that life can hold, whew, it's a lot easier to get through a 12-hour shift. Yeah, I think that that's totally right on. And kind of to the underlying point you're making a little bit around, you know, I don't want this to sound glib or cliche, but it's true. <laughs> I think that there's a way, and I don't want this to sound glib or cliche either, where when we are in the most challenging circumstances is when those kind of basic tactics are the most important and valuable. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And so to return to your kind of foundational practice, it's taking in the good. Mm. That's what you kind of made your whole universe on, the mm -hmm. idea that the brain can change for the better over time. Mm -hmm. We can internalize positive experiences and we can turn them into good resources that we can leverage over time. You have an enormous amount of material mm. on that. And that's kind of the macro level, the change the brain level. Yeah. But there's a micro level to it too. Yeah. And that's that when something good does happen and yes, Good experiences are probably in much shorter supply these mm -hmm. days than mm -hmm. they are normally. Keeping it real. But that actually mm -hmm. just makes it more important to yeah. identify them and absorb them when you do have them. Whether it's like just the feel of a nice cup in your hand that you like. Mm. Or it's the feel of taking a sip of coffee. Mm. Or seeing your dog when you come home. Like whatever it is for you, even those little, little, little things like... Let yourself feel them, really. Don't allow the truly, authentically negative experiences you are having to also completely crowd out the positive experiences that you authentically can have. Yeah. Because I think that one of the things that is most pernicious about traumatic experiences, and I would absolutely refer to this as a traumatic experience on both a primary and secondary level, is the way in which it can bleed out the enjoyment of the good experiences. Mm. 
So not only are you being exposed to that negativity, but you're also not feeling the positivity that maybe you were in the past. Mm. And sometimes when we feel a good thing and we've been exposed to a lot of bad stuff, that creates a real emotional movement inside mm. of ourselves. Like mm. sometimes, you know, hugging your dog makes you cry, whatever it is. Mm. And I think that that's okay. The people who are going to get through this in not only the physically healthiest way, but the psychologically healthiest way, I think are going to be the people that allow themselves to have those emotional movements while this is still going on, mm. who don't just kind of hold on to all of it mm. while it's happening and then find that they have to release all of that material on the other side of it. So it doesn't make you like weak of will if you are finding yourself having more frankly, emotional breakdowns than your colleague is. It really doesn't. Hmm. It might, if anything, mean that you're processing this in a more kind of appropriate and healthy way. Who knows? I just think that that's something to really reinforce here, that because you're struggling emotionally doesn't mean that you are weak in some sense or For that sure. you're not capable of rising to the occasion or whatever it might be. I would have more questions, frankly, about somebody in those roles who wasn't struggling psychoemotionally at this point. Hmm. So, It reminds me of uh, times in which I've been very drawn into a service role hmm. for my parents, especially my dad. There's this feeling of where you're just given over to it. You may not like it. You may wish it was different, and it doesn't matter hmm. because you're given over to it. You've surrendered. There's this feeling also I had it with my, my parents where it was just the difference between want to and have to. Mm -hmm. And I think under when the sun is shining and it's all just fine, we can make the choice want to over have to. But when we're in the middle of a storm like we are now, we're in the realm of have to, where you quit struggling about want to and you're in the realm of have to. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of surrender that occurs there, a kind of submission to reality in a sense that makes a lot of noise just whoo, hmm. move behind you and disappear. A lot of stress just falls away because you're just given over to the moment as it is. Hmm. And as a strange reflection, not to diminish in any way uh, what we're dealing with today and the aspects of unnecessary uh, injustice related to it that mm. said, I just think there's something about getting that I, I, a provider, am like so many others. You know, I felt this kinship with all parents who'd ever lived when I was walking you down the hall when you were a little kid, all right? We can have a kind of kinship with all those throughout history who've worked in the medical profession or been healers of various kinds and, and realize, you know, they hung in there when it was really sucked and I'm going to hang in there when it really sucks. And who knows what people have to deal with a century from now that they might look back with respect to what we came through ourselves and think for a moment, whoa, you know, I'm, I'm now in their situation, whatever mm. it might be. But I just think there's a kind of dignity and serenity that can come orienting to it that way. Mm. I think that's a really interesting reflection, yeah. I'm really grateful because... The people they're taking care of and the, um, the scientists who are working on treatments and vaccines and tests and everybody involved in that whole process, they're 
they are doing things that increase the likelihood that my kids will stay alive through this, for example, or that my wife will, or that my, my cousins will, and my sister and brother. And so that's something I am very grateful for. So I'm happy to say that, you know, again, that really from my heart, uh, in a way that's very personal, uh, this situation has touched all of us. It's pierced all of us in really personal ways. And truly, personally, I just want to thank you, whoever you are, right? Working in a hospital, uh, supporting healthcare in general, help serving meals in a nursing home. My aunt, who's 98, uh, lives in quarantine, essentially, in a nursing home in Colorado. And uh, the people there who bring the food and make the food and so carefully deliver packages to her and, and everyone involved in this whole process, including so many people that are doing this outside of institutions. They're doing it informally. They're bringing food to their aunt and leaving it on her doorstep, as my cousin is doing for his mother. Thank you. You can't really pay anyone enough to walk into a grocery store and take on some additional risk, even if they're 21 years old. And people like that as well are stepping into all kinds of roles. Just really, uh, there's a lovely teaching in, in Buddhism. It's called the Metta Sutta. It's basically Metta being loving kindness. And there uh, are some phrases in it that are really quite haunting. And to paraphrase some of them, uh, in ways seen and unseen, known and unknown, the great and the small, the famous and the not famous, uh, our compassion and our kindness and our efforts ripple out, touching so many in ways known and unknown. So I just want to thank you for doing all that you do and which touch and help in so many ways, uh, all of us, including myself and others that I care about deeply. I think that was lovely. And I think that's as great a place as any to conclude an episode that's a little tricky to find a soft landing spot for. So thank you so much for that and mm -hmm. couldn't agree more. One hope out of this is that people will be left with a greater appreciation toward all of the people that they don't see that make their lives a little bit better every day. So if you enjoyed the podcast episode, if you found it helpful, if you think that you know somebody who could benefit from hearing it, please you know, give it to anyone you want. We uh, create this content so it can be shared with people and hopefully be helpful for them. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.